This is the Education Gadfly Show. That's a problem. Debbie Tell me about Downer. it. Downer. We all remember that from SNL. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Ashley Jokum. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah, we were just chatting. It's been a while since you've been on, but we do remember you coming in actually to the studio at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute offices in downtown Washington with Paul Hill uh, many years ago to talk about your book back then and maybe a few other times. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Ashley is a principal at the Center on Reinventing Public Education. She is a political scientist by training. Uh, She's done studies on all kinds of topics, uh, but certainly the intersection of politics, education, policy, and now uh, has been leading this massive project at the Center on Reinventing Public Education that has been looking at pandemic pods. And so, yes, this is a pod about pods. Ha ha ha. Uh, We're really excited to have you on the show, Ashley. So let's get started. Let's talk about podding on this week's education reform update. Yeah. So Ashley, you know, what caught our eye was a study that came out in February from you all. But I understand you're, you're doing a whole bunch of case studies. You've got tons of working papers in the works. So just thinking about this whole issue writ large, Tell us, like, what, what should our listeners in, in education policy land know about pandemic era pods? Well, I think maybe to start off, it might be worth to sort of like set the stage here and let's rewind a little bit because a lot of people have probably heard of what a pandemic pod is. But to take you back to the context of sort of where the movement was born back in the fall of 2020, you know, the mm-hmm. pandemic was still in its infancy and Many families discovered often just on the eve of the school year um, that fall that school buildings weren't going to be open for in-person instruction after all. And it was in that moment that families facing fairly urgent concerns around childcare and and what they were going to do with their kids through their remote school days started to band together to solve these challenges. And, And so that was when the pandemic pod movement was really born. And at SERPY, we were watching things unfold during the pandemic, really from March of 2020. And we wanted to sort of look at this movement with an eye towards uh, what it might mean, not just from a pandemic response perspective, but uh, what could it teach us about what families want from education more generally, what teachers may want from education more generally. And the reason why we thought this was an important moment to look at is they families often working in partnership with a with a teacher they hired gained a truly historic opportunity to sort of remake education in their own visions. We had uh, their own little one-room schoolhouse mm-hmm. in, in this mm-hmm. moment. And so we think that those visions offer important lessons for, for folks looking to rebuild from the pandemic in, in ways that ultimately better support kids and families. So yeah, let, let's start kind of at the end of the story, right? Which is, you know, throughout the pandemic, a lot of us were wondering, you know, are we going to see these kinds of innovations stick or was this just an adaptation to a crisis? So when you go out and you talk to these pandemic pod parents <laughs> and teachers, what do you hear? Have they continued this now that the pandemic, knock on wood, has been receding or is, uh, you know, are, are they going back to their traditional public schools? Is this thing sticking around? Yeah, I think we could look at this as sort of a glass half empty, glass half full perspective. So on the one hand, in our study, when we asked families and teachers, would they be interested in continuing with pandemic pods? 
Um, the vast majority of them actually told us yes. And across all of our data, um, the, the majority of families and teachers found some benefit to pandemic potting that actually um, was better than their pre-pandemic experience. So it wasn't just better than remote learning without a pod. Mm-hmm. It was actually better than what they experienced in the traditional public school system. So that was really surprising, especially given that these things were born out of a crisis, right? They, it's not like there was a lot of intention in the, in the beginning when they, were, when they were being created. So on the one hand, you might be bullish about the opportunities of sustaining these post-pandemic. And yet, when we followed up with our interviewees, you know, going into the spring of 2021, that's when, you know, most school districts around the country Mm -hmm. were reopening for in-person instruction. The vast majority of people in our study had already decided to return to school. And so despite the benefits, despite people sometimes having really transformative experiences during pandemic potting, they all went back to school when buildings reopened. So that's maybe the, the glass half empty perspective. I think at the same time, looking beyond our study and, and looking at you know, other people's data, we do see you know, a sustained uptick in interest in things like homeschooling, virtual schooling, hybrid models of schooling. So I think the pandemic did open people's minds to something different, and some of that will persist. But from our perspective, if we want for pandemic pods to be sustained in some form in the future, either via you know homeschooling or micro schooling or some of these other alternatives, we need to address some of the shortcomings that families experienced along the way. Mm-hmm. This is great. So let's talk about those. What what were those? Yeah. So I think well, there were a lot of benefits that families and teachers alike experienced, as you can imagine. If you were to band together with five of your friends in a childcare arrangement um, of some sort there were some elements of fragility sort of built into that system because they were largely operating in the shadows, right? So Mm -hmm. as a family, for example, if your teacher that was leading your pod decided they wanted to get a new job, all of a sudden you're left without childcare or learning support for your kids and, and have to go find someone new. That doesn't happen when you're in a traditional system because somebody else, a substitute teacher comes into play. So there, that's one example of, of some of the fragility we see. Mm-hmm. We also saw it from teacher perspective. So teachers would tell us while they were pandemic potting that a family might decide to, to move to Florida for three months because they you know, wanted to do something different. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the teacher's income would you know, go down by that person's amount that they were contributing. And so you can imagine that creates some instability for teachers. So that's another downside. Um, we also heard from from families that as they reflected on their experience and why they were going back to school, families would tell us things like, well, we want our kids to have exposure to a broader array of, array of peers um, than they did. They loved this small, intimate group that they had during the pandemic, which so that was a real asset of pandemic potting, something that families really liked, these close relationships. But the flip side of that is that they didn't have access to those larger peer groups or exposures to, to more diverse peer groups. And so that's another thing that a weakness that families pointed to that was um, motivated them to return to the traditional system, even after they discovered all these benefits. So those are uh, a few of the pieces I would say. One last one I would add from a teacher perspective is teachers, on the one hand, really valued the professional autonomy and flexibility they had in the in their one-room schoolhouse, right? They were mm-hmm. sort of masters of their own domain. And yet they were cut off from collaboration and peers that they valued and appreciated. So there, there are some downsides to being master of your own domain and sort of operating in that type of context. So for teachers, 
sustaining interest in pandemic potting, I think, really will hinge on building systems that enable teachers to get access to the same types of professional supports and collaboration that they they might enjoy in a part of a system. Yeah, no, it's so it's so fascinating. I mean, no, you know, I, I had a tiny bit of experience with this. Uh, I, we did not pandemic pod writ large, but we had a friend who was worried that her son was not learning much math via Zoom school, a uh, middle schooler, and uh, our son was the same age. So, you know, she found some math teacher th- who after school came over, you know, to, to people's porches. Again, this is during the pandemic and, and taught, you know, three or four of them, uh, you know, helped them with their math homework and made sure they were doing okay. It was very ad hoc. The teacher was freelancing, you know, I don't know how exactly my friend found her, you know, we just happen to know each other. I mean, as you say, very fragile, right? And then it, it came to an end. I think, well, I, I think it was mostly when, when the weather got nice and it was harder to get the boys to sit there and <laughs> do their math and we eventually gave up, right? But it does seem like at least, at the very least, a market opportunity. I mean, of course, there's a million tutoring companies out there, especially in upper middle class America. Usually, I think you bring your kid there and they have a, you know, they find the tutor and they do the curriculum and then you get the service. It seems like if we could figure out a way to do more of that, maybe including at people's houses now online, but also for poor kids, right? I mean, how do we get that kind of, you know, out of school, maybe disconnected from the public education system opportunity available out there, you know, in a way that there's this sort of nascent market in a little pockets of America, but not everywhere. I mean, or, or I don't know, or I guess the other approach for policymakers is to say, no, that is a role that you just need the public education system to play. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, I think that there's multiple sort of trajectories for this. Um, so one, as you hinted at, there there is an emerging market for this. And we do see a mix of interest from both like for-profits as well as non-profit community-based organizations who are sort of inserting themselves into their space, in part because they saw these enormous possibilities emerge during the pandemic. And there's a lot of policy action that are creating the enabling conditions for these things to take root. So one example of this mm-hmm. is KaiPods, which is a Boston-based uh, company that is really drawing inspiration from pandemic pods to solve some of the persistent challenges that really predated the pandemic around virtual education. So, right, we know there's a long list of, of challenges kids mm-hmm. enrolled in online schools face predated the pandemic. But what would it look like to do some of what we saw during the pandemic pod movement to solve those challenges? And so what KaiPods is doing is actually pairing some of that in-person support for kids that are learning online through an online provider um, or a traditional virtual school and uh, providing the wraparound supports that address problems with disengagement or social emotional mm-hmm. supports or access to peers. So that's one example of uh, what is really an out-of-system phenomenon, so sort of building directly upon the pandemic pod movement and taking advantage of things like education savings accounts. So KaiPod can register as a tutoring provider in Arizona, and families can sort of opt in to the support and have access to public dollars to pay for it. Um, we also think that there are enormous opportunities to rethink how we serve kids in the traditional uh, sectors, both district and charter, Um, Mm -hmm. drawing inspiration from this movement. So one area where families and teachers alike just found so much value is because pods were so small, kids received really personalized one-on-one attention. I mean, you can imagine Mm -hmm. how different it might be to teach six kids versus 25 or 30 and how flexible the learning environment can be under those conditions and how deeper the relationships that might emerge Mm -hmm. with teachers and kids. Um, So lots of benefits in that space. 
But as you know, Mike, the challenges of trying to financially sustain such a reduction in, in class size would be really mm-hmm. impossible. And we've also haven't had a way to sort of draw enough effective teachers into the profession. We're already facing a workforce crisis without dramatically lowering class sizes. Mm-hmm. How do we solve this conundrum? And so we've been thinking a lot about this. And one real avenue we think is, you know, drawing again inspiration from pandemic pods is what would it look like to extend the reach of the most effective teachers, say virtually or through um, some segments of your day with much larger class sizes where you're getting access to that, you know, really good reading and math instruction, but then move into much smaller, more personalized uh, group sizes at other parts of the day so kids can have the, you know, the, the supports for their well-being and and, and access to peers that are going to, you know, ultimately deliver benefits as well. So that's one example. Um, and, and we do see some momentum for this uh, type of work. So interest in, you know, reconfiguring mm-hmm. educator roles so that not all of the role, not every teacher has to do everything, but that you could actually have teachers specialize, much like we saw during the pandemic with remote learning right. and providing certain types of, of supports for kids. All right. Well, that is fascinating. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like I just learned a ton and it it really is exciting. You know, again, none of us would rewind the tape and and do this over again if we didn't have to. Uh, Such a horrific experience for so many people here in America and around the world. But there's a silver lining, which would give uh, both parents and educators and kids a chance to try some new things. And, And we learned a lot from it. So again, uh, what If people want to check this out, it is called Crisis Breeds Innovation, Pandemic Pods, and the Future of Education by the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Ashley Jokum, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. So this is the podcast about pods. Very it exciting. Is, but I'm bump. Bum, bum, bum. My study has nothing to do with that. So ah, you should have given me the memo. That would have been good to have a thematic <laughs> no, focus. On, uh, research on pods, but sorry. That would have been pretty cool. I don't know. Look, I, I, interesting stuff. I'm still skeptical that we're going to see a lot of this stuff, you know, hang in there long term. But but who knows? I know. I know. It's We're, we're just cynical. We've been doing this a long is time, Mike. I know. And, uh, we don't want to become that way, but we do become that way. We, I, I get these notes from these people who are, you know, very new to education reform yes. and they're full of all these ideas. And I know I'm now that guy that's like, tried that, done that, tried that, done that. Yeah, no kidding. That's a problem. Tell me about it. Downer. We all remember that from SNL. All right. Well, certain (laughs) listeners do. Uh, The Gen X ones, maybe. that's true. All right. What do you got for us this week? Uh, We have a new study by Sarah Cordes and colleagues, always doing such good stuff, uh, examining the consequences of charter school expansion in New York City. New York City on school level and neighborhood level diversity. Evidently, great place to do the study. It's uh, obviously has a lot of residential and school segregation. It's got a fast growing charter sector. So analysts look at all New York City elementary schools defined as having a fourth grade because we know they've got eight gazillion different uh, Mm -hmm. configurations. They're looking at nearly two decades from 2000 to 2017. They limit the sample to schools in the 29 districts that have ever had a charter elementary school. They're trying to gather grade level, race and ethnicity data, as well as school location data and racial composition at the school zone level. Finally, a little bit about the methods. Got to do a little more. 
Uh, they got to disentangle the effects of charters on both traditional schools and on neighborhoods. So they use this difference in difference design that's going to exploit two sources of variation. First is the fact that charter schools phase in. Mm -hmm. uh, we know this. Most begin by offering kindergarten in the first year, and then they expand an additional grade every year, most mm -hmm. of them. And then we've got this variation in the relative size of the charter sector as more charters begin to open schools within the district over this nearly two decades. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're comparing the racial composition of TPS grades that are experiencing changes in charter school exposure to the racial composition of TPS grades within the same school. Okay. okay. Right. TPS, traditional public schools. schools. Got it. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is New York City, which... Frankly, un unlike some other big cities, uh, it does have some actual diversity in their yes, schools. I mean, is. there's some cities where basically all the kids are African-American or That's all the right. kids are African-American and Hispanic. There is a you know sizable proportion of white students uh, in is. New York City schools. Yep. Okay. Um, so the idea is that student demographics and grades that don't experience these changes in charter school exposure because of this phase-in thing serve as a strong counterfactual since they should not be directly affected by charter expansion. But they should reflect other demographic changes that are occurring mm -hmm. in the schools and neighborhoods that are unrelated to that charter school growth. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then they've got to look at the neighborhood segregation, too. So they look at the difference between the racial composition of the traditional schools and that of the school age population residing in the neighborhood where the school is located. Mm. They're trying to observe, uh, observe the extent to which the school and the neighborhood demographic changes match. Oh, it's a lot of stuff to get mm -hmm. to the findings, but you following me? I'm ready. All right, you're ready. Uh, they find a small, statistically significant positive effect of the share of charter seats on TPS diversity, specifically a 10 percentage point increase in the share of charter seats in a grade results in a nearly three percentage point increase in the racial diversity score. I can mm -hmm. talk about that in a second. Okay. Uh, this change is driven by an increase in the share of white and Hispanic students and a decrease in the share of black students enrolled in TPS grades after charter expansion. So they've got this, I mean, entropy. Is that how I'm saying entropy? that? Entropy? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, it's a diversity measure. So mm -hmm. you got a value of zero indicates no diversity. Mm -hmm. Everybody's the same race. A one indicates you've got a equal uh, match of white, black, Hispanic, and Asian. So 25% each mm -hmm. and other races are clumped in with the mm -hmm. Asian. So we talk 2.9 percentage point increase in this diversity score. That's on that basically zero to one mm -hmm. kind of scale that I just gave you. All right. Anyway, further, this increase in diversity occurs on the margin that also affects intense segregation. So a 10 percentage point increase in charter seats lowers the probability of intense segregation by about three percentage points. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, this is largely re reflecting reductions in the probability that a TPS grade is over 90 percent black. Mm -hmm. And uh, it aligns with that earlier finding that I told you about. They look at the results by borough. They find much of the same thing. Uh, nor do they find evidence that the district as a whole is becoming more segregated, leading them to conclude, and I quote, these results suggest that charter schools increase diversity in TPS primarily by reducing the share of black students and increasing the share of white students enrolled in these schools. In terms of neighborhood diversity, changes in neighborhood diversity largely mirror the school diversity pattern that I just told you about. Mm -hmm. But the school diversity is increasing even faster than mm -hmm. what they're seeing in the neighborhoods. And then there's a little discussion. Oh, that's okay. interesting. So the neighborhoods are becoming whiter. Right. As well, and they're but yeah. they're, they're lagging. Yeah, right. Uh, they're 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 lagging behind the diversity okay. we're seeing in the schools. Mm -hmm. And there's a little discussion about okay, well, we know other studies have found segregation between districts mm -hmm. uh, with charters, 
And they've got, well, they're trying to figure out whether this geographic enrollment preference in New York City has mm-hmm. anything to do with it because all across the city, they're required to give admission preference to students residing in the same district as the charter. Mm-hmm. And that it, that's also applies to oversubscribed charter schools. So maybe that's got something to do with it. Well, then, first of all, it sounds like an incredible study. I can only imagine the, uh, the data crunching and yeah. coding that went into this uh, way to go researchers. But uh, it's also super timely yeah. because the Biden administration, as mm-hmm. uh, listeners know, has recently put out these proposed regulations that all of us in the charter school movement thought were terrible mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons was because they uh, were pushing on this idea that charter schools should explain how they are going to serve a diverse group of students, yes. right, regardless of the uh, composition of the neighborhood around them. But right. what's happening here, it sounds like it's not that the charter schools are necessarily all that diverse, right? right? They are attracting black students, mm-hmm. uh, especially probably Hispanic students as well. And as they draw some of those black students away from these 90% black traditional public schools, those schools right. have less segregation in them, yeah, right? That's right. Which is a good thing, which that's is what right. we want. That's, that's and what we so want. If, if the Department of Education had its way, what, those schools wouldn't be allowed to open? Right, right. I mean, Crazy. this is, come on, that's people. completely counterintuitive. I mean, right. you you can't think about this just school by school. You've got to think about the impact on the Patterns whole system, right? System. And That's this right. is evidence that charter schools are having a positive impact on this thing they care about. <laughs> Do you think they're reading it? Maybe they're listening well, to us. We will make sure we'll that make they sure. read it. Okay. Right. But that That's is, right. it's really important. I mean, I, you know, is this just, I, I guess if, if we knew already that charter schools in New York City serve mostly black students and black and Hispanic students, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't it sort of automatic then that this is what you would find? I mean, it's it's just kind of the logical outcome. Out. But the point is that there are places where, you know, charter schools end up uh, attracting a lot of white students, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. I guess you could imagine that weird weird things could be happening, uh, I don't know, where, where some of the movement was going this right. way or that way. Right. right. I mean, we know like in North Carolina, for instance, that charters are located all over the state. Yep. You know, and they're pulling from all types of, of students and, mm-hmm. and families. So. A lot of this has to do, I mean, even in our home state, right, we used to only be able to locate in those, you know, Mm -hmm. lower performing areas and districts. Well, and I don't know if uh, in New York City, if there's a law, if if it's the charter law that makes it less likely that authorizers would approve a school that might be Mm -hmm. particularly attractive to white families, or if that's just the decision they've made as authorizers. Mm -hmm. You know, stereotypically, back in the day when there were magnet schools and like, you know, you you want to attract white families, you start up Montessori school. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of white people, that's, you know, something that a lot of white families like again we're talking big stereotypes here but maybe it's just the case that in new york city for one reason or another the schools that have been approved are school designs models programs that have mostly been attractive mm-hmm. to black and hispanic students and 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 as a result because the new york city public schools are so segregated that's going to have a positive impact and i think i've heard you know with national heritage academies and other some of these models that we hear about like build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they're not even sure, you know, there's it's something they're interested in, but when they learn about it and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, this is, this is a different model. This is something that I'm interested in, whether it be liberal mm-hmm. arts or mm-hmm. Mandarin theme or whatever mm-hmm. you have. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really appreciate the, the variety that we see in mm-hmm. New York and, and Washington, D.C. in terms of the types of charters that are opening. So. Yeah, but, but I guess what I'm saying is something different, Amber, which is that maybe there's not that much variety oh, in New York City. In other words, mm-hmm. like D.C., they approved a basis school, mm-hmm. right? And there was a lot of worry that that was going to mostly appeal to upper middle class right. families, especially mm-hmm. white families. I think in the end, it's been more diverse than, than people thought it would be. Right. But there are more 
upper middle class white families in basis than in the mm-hmm. KIPP schools, sure. for example. And mm-hmm. I, my sense is that in New York City, it's mostly just those sort of no excuses mm. kind of schools that don't appeal as much to upper middle class families, though even Moskowitz's success academies have, you know, tried in some places to be uh, attractive to. That's right. And step back a little bit. At least we're hearing on, on some yeah. of that. We'll see. All right. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Amber. But that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.